0: We oftentimes talk about the good old days and usually that means for us when we were a little bit younger and life seemed a little bit simpler. You know what I mean? Things get complicated. Y'all, Some of y'all are still young. Don't worry about it. Life tends to get complicated and uh, so you think about those good old days and, 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 and stuff and I just want you to know Biblically speaking, the good old days ended in Genesis chapter 3. That was the end of it. Uh, since then, we have been living in times that have been affected greatly by rebellion from God's law, from His Word, from His truth, and infected by things that we don't like, like mosquitoes and stuff. You know what I'm talking about? So we are going to look at Genesis 3 And we're going to begin this scene in the garden here. Uh, Let me remind you of where we are. In Genesis 1, we get the overview of creation. We get the six days, how God made everything. He spoke everything out of nothing. And so he speaks, it exists. So we have that in Genesis 1, and it tells us about those first six days, especially. The first Three days He is forming everything and making everything. The next three days He is filling it all up. And then on the sixth day it tells us that He creates man and woman in His image. And He places them in the garden that He has prepared for them. Now remember, day 7 comes in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And in day 7 we find God at rest. His work has been completed And now he is at rest in day seven. So thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That rest is that idea of Sabbath where it's the word that's used, so God then rests from his work. And in that sense, all of creation is at rest. God rests, all of creation's at rest. And if you use that understanding of rest, and and even seemingly kind of adding to it that idea of peace, when when you're able to rest and you have peace, right, Um, we can see this in Scripture how these two things go together. Uh, Psalm 23 is a good example where he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, if your enemies are at the door, it's going to be hard to sit down and eat. You're worried about what they may do to you. Why? Because God has prepared this table in the presence of you're able to rest for a moment, even though your enemy's at the door, right? So there's some peaceful moment, even though the enemy's bear down on you. Well, in the same sense in Scripture, you have rest and peace. Those things go together. And when God created the heavens and the earth, everything was good, and it was at perfect rest, perfect peace. And if you think about the three relationships here that we're going to see in Genesis 3, you have God and man. They were at peace. There was no uh, hostility between them at all. In fact, it it tells us that God walked with Adam and Eve. Uh, Even in Genesis 3, when he comes down to walk with them, that idea of walking is to engage in fellowship with. So in Genesis, whenever someone is mentioned that they walk with God, it was a good thing. It was that they were at peace with God. So if you remember in Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God, and the Lord took him, and he was no more. You remember with Noah, Noah was a man who walked with God. In Genesis 6, I think verse 9, he walked with God. You remember the same thing with Abraham and Isaac. In Genesis 48, it says Abraham and Isaac walked with God. In other words, they were at peace with God. They were at fellowship with him. Well, Adam and Eve had this same. They were at peace and at fellowship with God. So therefore, there was peace between God and man. And in that same sense, there was peace between man and woman. They were naked and not ashamed. I'm trying my best not to say naked, okay? But they were, which one's right? Oh, naked's right. Okay, okay. It's like wrestling. Um, so they were, at Allison's back there tonight, y'all. She, and so I'll get that. So uh, they were naked and not ashamed. This is a statement of bliss, of peace, of joy. They were together. And and, and this statement is meant to give you that idea that everything was right in that relationship together. They were at peace. And then there was, of course, peace between Adam and the earth. Uh, Adam would work, not a four-letter word, a term of fulfillment, of, of dominion, of taking over. And the earth would produce. The earth would produce, and there would be that fulfillment of work and production, right? And so you would work the, the earth, and the earth would produce what's needed to be produced. So there was perfect peace. There was perfect peace between man and God, perfect peace between man and woman, perfect peace between man and the earth. It's was perfect peace. And you see in Genesis 2, when it gives us that greater snapshot of how God Place man, created man, forming out of the dust, breathing his own breath into him, and then man naming all the creatures, and in the end, God then taking from man a rib, making a woman, they celebrate, and they rejoice. They have this picture here given. There was peace. Everything was good. They were naked and not ashamed. And so you have that understanding at the end of chapter 2. And then Genesis chapter 3 just slams the door here with the first verse when he says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so in the midst of this perfect peace and, and, and the word here where he says, uh, and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, this idea of not ashamed, it's the same word as crafty, if you will. And so they're drawing, he's drawing this, statement. He's, this is the same Hebrew type word, so they're using this to connect these two. Now everything was good in the garden, and then here comes the serpent, the crafty one. The great disturber of God's peace enters in in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now remember Adam had been given a duty, a responsibility to work the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. He was the vice-region of God. He was in charge, if you will, the crowning jewel, Adam and Eve, man and woman, crowning jewel of God's creation. Their responsibility was to exercise dominion over this garden, to work it, and to keep it. That was their role and responsibility. And remember, God had given them uh, uh, the ability to eat of any tree they wanted to eat from in the garden, except for one in particular. And if you look back in chapter 2, you'll see that there in verse 17, 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the, tree of, the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So the Lord had said, "There's planted the trees, there's a tree of life in there, you can eat of any tree you want to eat from, except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of that, you die. And remember, this was a probationary place that Adam was in. God's saying, you have this privilege to eat of anything. You have this privilege to be the vice regent and to exercise dominion over all of this. This is, you are uh, my image in all of creation, the crowning jewel. You have this privilege, Right? All you have to do is be obedient to me by not eating of that tree. That's it. So the privilege to doing all of these things and exercising this dominion was simply kept by just being obedient, obedient to the Lord. So when you get to Genesis 3 then, the serpent enters in. The rest is there. The peace is there. And now, as they are... Naked and not ashamed, as it ends chapter 2, now you come in. Now you come in and the serpent is seen. When the serpent comes in here, he is unexpected. It doesn't seem like this is supposed to happen, right? I mean, it's like out of the blue. Everybody's naked and not ashamed, and the serpent enters into the garden. So it's unforeseen, if you will. And it almost, he almost appears suddenly. We're not told where he comes from. We're not told where he comes from. We're not told what happened. We're not told how this went down. Uh, and let me just go ahead and let you know, there's so many people. I, was, when I, I, I had the privilege of training pastors in India, and they could not get over this. They wanted to know about this serpent. They wanted to know where the serpent came from. They wanted to know all those things. And we'll discuss some things, but uh, ultimately, we have to remember that the Lord God, in giving us his word, has given us absolutely everything we need to know for life and salvation, right? That's what the scripture says. Everything we need to know for life and salvation. And if you are a parent at all, or if you're aspiring to be a parent, you need to learn this too. There is a difference between needs and wants. Amen? Yes. You may want to know that, But you don't need to know that. Does everybody understand? You may want to know how all of this went down. You may want to know where this serpent came from. You may want to know all of those questions, but you do not need to know that. If you needed to know that, my point is, if you needed to know that, God would have told you. But he didn't tell us exactly what happened. He, doesn't tell, he didn't tell us where exactly the serpent came from. He didn't tell us exactly how all of this guy i about and why in Genesis 3 is all of a sudden this thing in the garden. He doesn't tell us that because we don't need to know. That's not the important thing. We don't need to know. It's not the important thing. But there are some things we can learn in the scriptures. There are some things we can learn. First of all, we know that this serpent was a creature, right? Therefore, it was created, created there's only one creator God the serpent was a creature he says this he says this serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made he puts the serpent in the same category as all the other parts of creation any other beast in the field this serpent here was a creature and we know this and and I'll come back to this as I kind of build this case if you will What's also noted here is it's not, really, it's not really that it's a serpent that's important. Does that make sense to everybody? It's not just that it's, a, it's not a, the fact that it's a serpent that's important. Uh, the substance of what the serpent says is way more important than who he is. What the serpent says here and what the serpent does here is way more important than where he came from or who he is. The scriptures tell us what he says. The scriptures tell us what he's offering. The scriptures tell us what he's trying to do. They don't tell us where he came from or who he is necessarily right here. And remember, the scriptures also don't always give us everything we want right up front. When Adam and Eve fall, there's going to be Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, talking to the serpent, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He says that in Genesis 3, 15. That's a glimpse of what's going to happen to the serpent through the coming of the King Jesus, right? This is the first prophecy in Scripture of the King. But he doesn't say, here's how it's going to go down, Satan. I'm going to send my son. He's going to come. He's going to be born of a virgin, raised up in Nazareth, be a carpenter for 30 years. He's never going to sin. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to crush you right there, and then he's going to be raised again. He doesn't give us all that. In the Scriptures do not usually give us all of that. At first, we read through it, and it gives us as we go. Progressive revelation here. So this serpent is a creature, and what's important here is what the serpent is going to say. And the serpent has one goal in mind, it seems. And that one goal is to disturb the peace of God, to shatter the peace of God, to destroy that rest. So... If we remember our our principles of understanding the Scriptures, the first principle is you go to the plain reading of the text. What does the Bible say? What does the text say? The second principle is you let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's look at a couple passages that may help us in this. Why is there this creature here that seemingly is at odds with who God is and what God has done in creation? If you turn with me, I'm going to... You're going to be using your Bibles a little bit tonight. Okay, that's, is that all right? So, if you need to keep your finger in the table of contents, that's okay. I'm not mad at you. Um, we're just working on the Ten Commandments on Sunday. We'll get the books of the Bible later. Y'all know, y'all know me? <laughs> Second Peter 2.4. We're going to use the text to help us understand some things here. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.4. So it's going to give us a little bit of insight that there were some creatures. There were some creatures called angels, right? We know this. Creatures called angels are created beings called angels, and these angels fell and sinned against God. So 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world. So in other words, Second Peter 2 Peter 2.4 tells us that there were angels that were created by God that sinned against him and fell. Right? teaches us that. If you flip over to Jude, some of y'all may not have been in Jude for a while. It's just one page in your Bible, so you can miss it. But in Jude, we see the same thing in Jude verse 6. There's only one chapter in Jude, so it's Jude verse 6. And, he says this again, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. So, Peter tells us as these angels sinned against God and he cast them out, right? How did they sin? They did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. And so, Peter and Jude are teaching us, this is where we get this, note, this, this understanding, that there were created beings called angels that sinned against God, and they sinned against God because they questioned His authority. Right? They questioned His authority, and therefore God has cast them out. Now, who is this main one? Turn with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28. What about this one that's talking here in Genesis 3? We know that there's some angels that have fallen, and they fell, and, and they were created beings. So somewhere between, you know, uh, Genesis one verse thirty-one or so, right there, day six, and then and then and then ultimately Genesis two verse four, day seven. Somewhere between that verse and Genesis three one, there were some angels created that fell, that question the authority of God, that question God's rule even over them, and God cast them out of heaven. We saw that. So now we see in Ezekiel. What's happening in Ezekiel is an interesting passage. It's not the most clear thing you can find, but what's happening is Ezekiel is condemning a king, a real person. Ezekiel chapter 28. He's condemning the king of Tyre prince or king of Tyre. This is a real person. Now Tyre is spelled T-Y-R-E from in Red Bank, South Carolina It's pronounced Tyre. So if you've got a different pronunciation, that's fine. So you have here Ezekiel 28 and really starting down in verse 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation, which is a, a sad song or a a dirge, if you will, over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now what's happening here is that I believe this king of Tyre is a real person, right? And this king of Tyre has demonstrated an arrogance or a pride against God. Remember, God is the one, Romans chapter 13, who puts kings in positions. God is the one who considers, who puts them in their proper place. And so you see kings in the Bible, even though they're not God-fearing like Nebuchadnezzar, right? You see kings in the Bible that assume the role of God, if you will, think that they have uh, uh, risen to that level, and then God punishes them. God demonstrates that you, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know who you are. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. Assume the role of God and had everybody bow down to him, and what he ends up eating grass and mooing like a cow. And so you have Nebuchadnezzar who's demonstrated this. You have the same thing that's happening with this king of Tyre. But what I think Ezekiel's doing through the inspiration of the, of the Spirit is he's drawing attention to the fact that the king of Tyre is acting just like one who did this before, just like one who had done this before, right? It's the same type of thing that happens in the New Testament. Remember when, remember when Jesus is talking about the, his, his death. He's going to the cross. And Peter says, we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to let you go to the cross. You know, we're not gonna, we don't want you to do this. We're not going to let that happen. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Why did he say that to Peter? It's not that Peter was Satan. And Peter's not the serpent in the garden or anything like that. What Peter was doing was he was echoing the sentiment of Satan himself. Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. Satan didn't want. That's what happens in the wilderness when Jesus is being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan's trying to stop him. I'll give you all of this kingdom. Everything you see will be yours. What's Satan's hope? Is that Jesus will get all of it. Jesus is going to get all of the kingdom. But the way God had designed it, his father, was that he would have to go to the cross and receive that, right? Satan's trying to get him to skip the cross. And so that's Satan's plan. And so Peter was echoing the plan of Satan when he said, you're not going to the cross, Jesus. So get behind me, Satan. That's Satan's plan. It's the same thing here. This king of Tyre had demonstrated an arrogance and pride that echoed Satan himself. And so I believe through the inspiration of the spirit, and some disagree with this. I think that this makes sense to me. Through the inspiration of the spirit, Ezekiel is saying, what you are doing, king of Tyre, is you're acting just like Satan did in the beginning. Because listen to what he says. He says, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. The king of Tyre wasn't in Eden, right? Satan was. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, we'll go through that whole thing. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. The king of Tyre wasn't on the holy mountain of God, right? In God's presence there, we see this. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. So he's created. Till unrighteousness was found in you, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you. As a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you, and all who knew among the peoples who appalled who are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be more, no more forever. So what's happening here is he's making a prophecy, a judgment over the king of Tyre. But in that judgment, he's demonstrating that what you are acting like is just like the rebellion of the angels before, in that main one. And it's in this passage, of course, that we get that that idea of the morning star or day star. Turn with me now over to Isaiah 14. We're going to put Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 together. So we've learned in Ezekiel 28... If we consider that he's talking, of course, about the king of Tyre, but his arrogance and pride and how that reflected the arrogance and pride of Satan himself when he was cast out. We've determined that he was a high-ranking official, if you will, a guardian, one of the guardian cherubs, maybe one who stood around the throne. You get those images in Isaiah of the ones who are around the throne singing holy, holy, holy day and night. One of those, maybe you have that idea. You have this high-ranking one who was beautiful and glorious, who thought of himself finally and ultimately greater than God. Thought of himself finally and ultimately greater in God. And then in Isaiah 14, you have what goes on, I believe, here in the mind of that one, because in Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. That's that name, Lucifer, if you will. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain, mount of assembly in the far reaches of the earth, excuse me, of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so you see in Ezekiel this aspect, if you will, of how this one has considered himself greater, more arrogant, beautiful. Considered himself greater than God. And then in Isaiah, you get this idea of this one, I believe, speaking of this same creature that Ezekiel is talking about, the thought process in his head. Ah, you said in your heart, or in his heart, that's good. You said in your heart. I will ascend above the stars. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. Notice the shift between the responsibility of the angels, if you will, to bring glory to God, right, to the shift of saying what? I will. I. I. It all becomes about me. And because of this, he says, You will be brought low, brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pits. And those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. In this the man who made the earth tremble and who shook kingdoms. Is that the one? And so ultimately, because of the arrogance that you have, because of your pride thinking that you could be greater than God, you could be smarter than God, you could take the position of God, you can rule instead of God and be better at it. Because of that, you'll be brought low. So when you put those things together, we recognize that there was clearly some sort of rebellion of the creatures that they call angels. There in, in this time, 2 Peter Jude. And those were cast out or cast down. And then we see that there was clearly one amongst them that seemingly was a leader that thought himself greater than God, that thought himself higher than God, that thought himself smarter than God. And because of that, he was rejected and sent lower. So we see this in probably That's ultimately, just so you know, the idea of Satan and what we know about him and what we know about his 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 uh, beginnings come from these two passages. Like, uh, everything we know, really comes from these two. In that understanding, now just to be clear, in Genesis three, he's never called the name Satan. Right? It's just the serpent. Uh, We see in Job the name Satan comes up in uh, chapters 1 and 2. In the New Testament, the the name devil, the devil comes up. We see Beelzebub. We see a couple of other things that that crop up. But if you flip to one more place, Revelation chapter 12. I preached there one time. (laughs) Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 In this revelation to John, it is made clear. And the great dragon, this great dragon that you have in Revelation 12, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient what? Serpent. That word ancient serpent is drawing us back to Genesis 3. That great dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down. So you see here, in Revelation 12, though Genesis 3 doesn't doesn't tell us that's Satan, Revelation 12 does, right? And so it tells us that that serpent in Genesis 3 was Satan, that ancient serpent. That's him. The devil, Satan, that's him. And so... Again, hopefully you can see as we talk all the time about how to understand Scripture, Scripture helps us to understand Scripture better. Genesis 3-1 just simply tells us there was a serpent in the garden who was more crafty than any other beast. Where did this serpent come from? We can look to other passages that help us put this together, though it doesn't tell us exactly everything. It does give us a sense that this was a creature that considered himself greater than God. Somehow his pride and arrogance became this way, and because of that, considered himself greater, considered himself smarter, considered himself better. He thought he could be God, as Isaiah 12, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 14 tells us. He thought he could be God, and he was cast down. He assumed he could be that way. And he was cast down. And with him were other angels that assumed this outside of their authority that 2 Peter and Jude tells us. Do y'all see how we did that? So that's what we get to here in Genesis 3, 1. We get to this one. Scriptures help us understand who this is a little bit. But this serpent appears in the garden. Adam and Eve are Naked and not ashamed. I'm just going to say it over and over again. You can't do that in other places. They're naked and not ashamed. And here comes the serpent. The disturber of their peace comes in. He's trying. He's got one goal. He's trying to disturb what they have. And so he comes in and he speaks Now, nobody knows. Everybody wants to know, oh, did other animals speak at this time? They may have. Some of y'all think your dogs speak, and you record them, and nobody else. I don't hear it. and, um, And all this other kind of stuff. So we don't know if any other creature, it doesn't, everybody, it doesn't seem to catch Eve off guard, you know, but here's a woman who is living with uh, her husband, Adam, in this garden, naked and not ashamed, I'll say it again, and here they're walking with God every single day in fellowship. It may seem normal that this creature just speaks up. Who knows? Don't get sidetracked. That's my point. Here comes this creature, and he says to the woman, did God actually say? Now, what happens in this next paragraph, or pericope if you want to call it that, what happens here is what I believe is the anatomy of sin. In other words, this first sin is in the garden is the same way all sin kind of evolves and happens. This is the nature of it. Here's what it's going to do. Here's what it's trying to do. What you have here in Genesis 3 is the anatomy of sin. And every time we sin, it takes this same role, this same nature. All right? So therefore, we can learn a lot from this. What does Satan try to do from the very beginning? He wants to question. He wants you to question God's word. He wants you to question God's word. Remember, this whole thing is about authority ultimately. Who has the authority to tell you what to do? Did God actually say? Did God really say that to you? The first thing that's just going to happen anytime time that you sin against God is you're going to question his word. Because a sin against God is a rejection of his word in essence. You're not doing what he says to do. And so that's what sin is. You're just not, you know, we can define sin so many different ways. Missing the mark, all these other things. But sinning against God is questioning God's word at the very heart. And what Satan does here, because we know the serpent comes in, Satan is using this creature to do his bidding here. And what happens is he says to them, did God actually say? Question God's word. The scriptures have become clear. That success in life, right? We like to talk about success. Success in God's word has nothing to do with financial wealth, right? It has nothing to do with position that you may attain to. It has nothing to do with where you may live. Success in God's word really has nothing to do with what the world says success is. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. What does the Lord say to Joshua? Keep my word. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Be strong and courageous and follow my word. And if you follow my word, what does the Lord say? You will have success everywhere you go. Success in this life is always found in following God's word. It's always found in following God's word. And so what happens here is whenever Satan comes in, the number one thing he wants you to do is question the word of God. To create some idea in your head that maybe God's not as smart as he thinks he is. Maybe God doesn't quite know everything like I know it. Now, if you can, sorry about that. If you can, you will notice that this follows exactly what was said in Isaiah 14, right? You said in your heart, I know better than God. I'm smarter than he is. And so when you begin to question God's word, you begin, you begin to make it clear here, I know better than him. And every time you sin, every time you sin against God and you disobey his word, What you are saying by that action, whether you want to say it out loud or not, what you are saying by that action is, I'm smarter than God. I know what's best for me. What's best for me at this moment is not to tell the truth. What's best for me at this moment is to lie, because if I tell the truth, I may get beat up. What's best for me in this moment is for me to fulfill the emotions that I have and be unfaithful to whatever commitments and covenants I made because that's what's best for me right now, right? I know better than God. I know what's best for me. I know what's right for me. The very heart of sin is the idea that you think you're smarter than God. It's the very heart of it. And Satan knows that and Satan comes in immediately and he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent. Now, did God actually say that? No, he didn't. Did did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Y'all know how that works. Did he really say that to you? God, that would be awful. That would be awful if he did. Did he really say that? But that's not what he said at all. In fact, he said, You can eat from every tree in the garden. You can eat from any tree you want to eat from, except for that one, right? So God's initial statement to them was not one that's binding them up, it was one that's freeing them. And and we all know, as again, as parents or other things, you create rules to protect. Why would God tell them not to eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil? Because if you eat of it, you'll die. Should God have not told them that? Of course he should have told him that. He tells him that because you can't, if you eat of that, you're going to die. Don't eat of that one. But every other one is fine. God obviously knows best. He's helping them. But that's not what Satan wants to do. Satan wants her to question God's, question God's rule, question God's word. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's right. But, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, Eve goes in to correct the serpent. And she says, no, that's not what God said. God said, we we can eat of the fruits of the trees of the garden. But then she goes on. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. What does she add here? Let's look back in chapter 2, second half of 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. First of all, you may surely, freely, another way to translate surely, you may freely eat as much as you want to from every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? Okay. So what's the, what happens here? Look at what she does. She begins to add to God's word. Whenever it comes, she says, no, that's not what he said. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. First of all, nobody said anything about the midst of the garden. She's worried about the location. She, she's adding something here to this to make it seemingly more binding, right? And so she says, you can eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. Did God say anything about touching it? What's happening here is what we happen to do all the time. We take God's word and God's rules and then we start adding to them to make them feel more binding to us, right? Man, it just keeps going on. So not only you question God's word, you add to God's word to make it feel more binding. This is the heart of what we call legalism, if you will. You make more things in there that aren't in there so you feel more bound by it. In other words... You try to create a law that protects the law. And when you create a law that protects the law, you're making a law out of something that's not even supposed to be there. And so when you do that, when you do that, of course it becomes oppressive. Of course it becomes that because you've created a law even unto yourself. You said, she says that you shall not eat of it or touch it. Well, God never said anything about touching. You're making this more binding. And you may think that's not a big deal, but it happens all the time. It happens all the time where people add to God's law to make God's law feel more binding. And that's what, like I said, what we call legalism. And when you do that, now it feels like there's some sort of oppression here. I can't even touch it. Good grief. This is too much. I'm out. I'm going to do it. Satan wants you to question God's word. And then when you remember God's word or you go to it, you add more to it to make it more binding to you so you feel oppressed by it. God doesn't want me to flourish God's holding me back. He's holding me back. And then, what do you do next? You go on, and not only do you do it. By the way, she says, lest you die. That's not what God said. God said, surely you will die. In other words, that idea here is given where she's saying, you're not supposed to eat it or touch it. You may may die. God says, no, you will die. So not only does she add to God's law, she reduces... The punishment for it. It's not going to be that big. It's not going to be that bad. You know, we may die. It might happen to us. So she questions God's word. She adds to the law to make it feel more binding, like God's trying to hold her back, if you will. And then, and then she even questions and says, it's not going to be as bad as we may think. So here, next, not only does she do that, she replaces God, or this is Satan's design, is to replace God as the authority. Neither shall you touch it lest you die, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Outright questioning God's word. Outright lying, by the way. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's happening here is Satan's getting them to question God's Word. They add to God's Word to make it more binding than it really is, so it feels oppressive, if you will. And they diminish the effects of God's Word, so you're justifying in your mind why it's okay to question God's Word and go against God's Word, because it's not going to be that big a deal. So you diminish the effects of it, and then you start to say, really the reason why God doesn't want me to sin or to eat of that tree is I'll be like him. I'll know, as, I, I, I know, I'll know as much as him. That's what Satan says. You question the very authority of God. So he questions the authority of God. You question God's power. You will not surely die. He doesn't have the power to do that. Question God's power. You question God's goodness. When he, when, when he says, you will not surely die, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. In other words, God is keeping you blind to truth. God is keeping you blind to to rejoicing. God is keeping you blind to to flourishing. He wants you to keep you in your oppressive nature. He wants to bind you up. He's not trying to let you free. He's trying to hold you back. God is holding you back in this. And so in this sense, he's saying that if if you do this, you question God's word, then you add to God's word to make it more binding, and then you replace God as that authority, questioning his power. He can't kill you. You're not going to surely die. I don't believe that. And you question his goodness. He's not, He's trying to, He's trying to keep you from something. And, and, and if you think about it, this stuff happens in our minds so quickly, and sometimes just uh, we just without even processing it, we just do it, you know, when we sin. But it's exactly what falls behind every sin we commit. We think this sin doesn't carry with it a great, a great charge. There's no real judgment that's coming off this. You know, not, you won't surely die. And I know better than God. I'm smarter than him, and this is better for me than what he has for me. This is better for me than what he has. So you believe, which is the, 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 the fourth thing here, you believe that you're smarter than God. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She believed that she was smarter than God. She simply says it here. I mean, look at it. Oh, this is actually good for me to eat. This is a delight for my eyes. This is something good for me. This is going to be, this is going to, I, I know better for me. I know what's best for me. And so not only do you see and think you're smarter than God, you act upon that idea. So she took it and she ate it. And if you see this process, that's how sin is. If you don't question God's word and you believe God's word is true, then you're not going to Fall into sin on that because you know God's word tells you the punishment of that sin. And you believe that's right, so you don't do it. But when you go into sin, you're questioning God's word. Whether you want to say it or not, you're saying, I know better. I'm smarter. I'm rising to that position. Now remember what happens in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. You see what happened to Satan. Satan in that time, Isaiah is telling us what happened to him was to think, I know better than God. I'm smarter than him. I can rise to that same position. I can ascend to that holy mountain, and I can take that seat. That's what Satan believed. And this is the same thing he's trying to get Eve to do here. He's just simply saying, you can rise. You can go up. You can be better. You're smarter. You're good. It's the same exact thing. And so anytime we sin, just like this, we're saying as well that we're smarter than God. We know better than him. We know what's best for us. He doesn't. She ate. She took the fruit and she ate. And then what happens next? She gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, up to this point, I'm clearly we're talking about Eve. That's who the serpent is talking to. There's nothing in this text that would make us think that Adam is somewhere else, right? Seemingly the way this reads, and I think rightfully Adam's right there. So in this great moment, there is no one more derelict of their duties than Adam. When the serpent came in, Adam had the responsibility to take that serpent, crush its head. By the way, that's what I do to all serpents, amen? Unless I have a hoe, then I chop it into 12 pieces. So if he'd had that, that'd have been fine. Adam takes that moment. He should have taken the serpent. Crushed its head and cast it out. Kicked it out of the garden. That was his role. That was his responsibility. But instead, he sits idly by. Notice a couple things. Like I said last week, Adam was the prophet, priest, and king, right? Adam was the one who was the vice regent over God's creation. He had dominion over all of this God gives him. Adam was the one as king. Adam was the one who was Going back and forth with God and speaking to him like a priest does. Able to talk with him one-on-one. Walk with him in a day just like a priest does. Adam was the prophet. Why? Because God spoke his word. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 and 17, who does God give the command to? Adam. Eve wasn't even created yet. Eve was still not created because it'll be in the next paragraph that all the creatures come to Adam. It's in the next paragraph that he comes and there's not a helpmate amongst all of them proving that God is going to create here. And God takes the rib from his side, cause him to take a nap. God ordained in the garden naps and God takes the rib from his side and there is Eve. So who is the one that had the responsibility to tell Eve about the rules in the garden? Adam's responsibility, as the prophet, as the one who has God's word and now should give God's word. It was Adam's role. And so there is no more terrifying scene, I think, in Scripture than to Eve be having this conversation with the serpent and Adam, knowing his responsibility, knowing his role, knowing what was given, standing idly by. And not only that, when Eve ate... He, she just simply turns, it seems, and hands the fruit. Paul makes it very clear. Paul makes it very clear that Eve was deceived. Right? This is Paul, Apostle Paul. Eve was deceived, but Adam, he was not deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Adam knew exactly what his role was. Adam knew exactly what his responsibility was, and he forsook it. And in that moment, he chose Eve, right, not to disagree with her, not to go against her. He chose that relationship there over his relationship with God. And he was not deceived. He just took it and ate. Now, all of that is important because we recognize that, as Paul tells us in Romans 5, Adam was not just the first man, he was the head, right? The federal head, representative head. And from Adam, sin entered in, and through Adam, sin entered to all man, right? And so Adam is the one. So all of us in this room are children of Adam. We are born of Adam's race, and we have the same nature as Adam, which is sinful, right? We all have this. And so what has to happen, as Paul says, is there has to be a second Adam that comes. And that second Adam is Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, who fulfills his role in every way. We'll talk about that more as we go along. But Adam here had this responsibility that he was derelict in to speak the truth. I truly believe that if Adam would have received that fruit, now this is just me conjecture here, but if Adam would have taken that fruit, threw it to the ground, kicked the serpent out, then him and Eve would have still been in the garden. But instead he sinned. He went against God, he went against his word, he went against his truth, and he thought he knew what was better for him in eating that fruit. The effects of Adam eating the fruit were immediate. Listen how rapidly this happens. Verse 7, she handed it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then, after she ate in sequence, he ate then, which is why I would say that if Adam would have not eaten then, and handled the serpent, then they would have still been in the garden, right? But here, then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately what happens is Adam and Eve recognize, they immediately recognize that they are inappropriate before God. We talk about getting dressed, right? Putting on clothes and appropriately dressing for the right occasion, what you're doing. So dress appropriately, you know? So you say that when they were naked, They were not ashamed in the garden. But as soon as they ate, what happens? Shame enters in. That nakedness and shame is what we refer to as guilt. There that guilty feeling happens and their guilt overwhelms them and they recognize we've got to cover ourselves because we are inappropriate to stand here in this place like this. Their sin had made them inappropriate before God. And so they try to sew some designer fig leaves together real quick, throw them on, do what they can. The work that they were called to do turns into a work to try to cover themselves. And we all know what happens whenever our works are how we try to earn our appropriateness before God, right? They were inappropriate. So here they are trying their best To make themselves appropriate before God. As we look at this passage, this is one of the sadder passages in Scripture. Here you have the serpent entering in. You have God who had been clear about his promises, had been clear about his positions, had been clear about his understanding and his care for his people. But his people rejected him. What happens in the garden is outright rebellion. And what happens every time we sin, that's me and that's you, is outright rebellion. You were looking at the creator God of the universe, the king of heaven and earth, and you were saying to him, I'm not going to do what you've told me to do. I'm smarter, I'm better, I'm wiser than you. I know what's best for me, God. That's what I'm going to do. What's best for me. Every sin is a declaration, a declaration to God that you know better than him and you're smarter than him. Notice what happens here. Do not eat of that thing or you shall surely die. What happens at the moment of Adam eating and why so quickly their eyes were open, is because immediately they died. Spiritually, they're dead. Because the scriptures teach us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And immediately they died. Now their bodies are going to take some time, but we're all here tonight, right, knowing that death is coming and creeping. And why? Because of sin. Because of sin. And the only thing happens now, the only way forward after Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and Adam took the fruit and he ate it. The only way forward from that verse on is the cross. It's the only answer. All of Scripture is going to testify to why that's the case. The only way forward is the cross. No more self-justification. You're not going to get out of this. You're not going to explain it away. You're not going to compromise yourself back. You're not going to go into terms with God and try to work some sort of deal and have some sort of bartering system and say, Hey, God, let me do this. You give me that. We'll be okay from there. There's no self-justification from here. There's no more fixing this. The only way forward from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 is the cross. That's it. Because the wages of sin and rebellion is death. And we'll see that as we continue through Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray. God, we come tonight and we thank you for the cross. We thank you that as we live here in 2021, we are living on this side of the cross and the victory that Christ had there where he took the head of the serpent and crushed it and cast him out. And so, God, we rejoice in Jesus. Help us not to sin, God. Help us not to fall for the lie that we are smarter than you and we know better than you. Help us to trust your word every single day and find success, Father. True success that you have shown us. God, thank you for Christ, who is our second Adam, our prophet and priest and king. And for all of us who are in Christ, we rejoice, God. We rejoice. So, Father, help us to live in light of our Savior and help us live in knowledge of the freedom that only he can give us. All for your glory and all for your name. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you. We'll see you Sunday.